Man stands with America. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, America. Thank you so much for joining me today. This, of course, is the show where you come for the action and you stay for the principles. Today's show is very special. We're going to not have monologues. I'm just going to break it down. We've got a very special guest. It's Cheryl Atkinson. You all know her. She's former CBS News and CNN. She now works for her own herself. She does great journalism. Thank you so much for joining us, Cheryl. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to discuss with you because you're a, a fascinating character in the sense that everyone knows you, you're a household name, everyone has an opinion on you. But the one thing I always am strike by my friends on my left and the right is everyone always says, I may not like what you say, but I always trust you that, you know, I, you'll get the truth. You don't have a bias. Um, it's very hard to understand what your sort of political leanings are. And I wanted to just to start the interview by kind of talking to you about journalism standards and where they, the system has gone wrong. Is journalism dead today in 2021? I think journalism, as we once thought of it, not that it was ever perfect, but yes, it's pretty much dead and gone and transformed. And I tried to outline the process and the forces behind it in really all three of my books, but starting back in the 2014 time period with Stonewall and then slanted when I talk about, or the smear when I talk about the industry that's behind transforming the news as we once knew it into what is largely a propaganda tool of corporate and political interests that make sure we speak on terms that they want us to speak about, whichever side is being taken, that we're using the proper language, we're on point with the stories and the topics they want us to talk about and not others. Um, this has been going on you know, full force for the past decade and a half that I've noticed with an acceleration and expansion to control of the internet, particularly in the last four years. So what I'd love to do is just because, you know, we, we kind of see behind the scenes, we know how people work and I've seen how, you know, different shows on The Blaze work in different networks. What I'd love to do is just for the audience just to take, you know, peep behind the, the curtain when you were, let's say, at CBS or CNN. You don't have to name names, but when you were on doing a show, who, who would come up with what you would talk about? Would it be you? Would you come in and say, hey, I've, this is a really interesting story. I've done a bit of homework. We should talk about this. Or would it be kind of higher ups or would it be producers? What was the when you were in some of those networks? What was the, the, the way you operated? Well, at CNN, I mostly anchored and I did do some reporting, some ideas of my own and spare time that I could call out. But mostly I was an anchor at CBS. It was a mixed bag as a new reporter. Uh, when I first started there in about 1994, a lot of it was assignments because you don't really have a foothold there yet. But as time went on, it became largely my ideas that I would get interviews and contacts and sources and come up with stuff that what I wanted to do and try to do was find out things that powerful interests didn't want to be found out about that other reporters weren't covering or maybe had missed something or didn't know something. You know, I was trying to unearth new and original information. And the more that I got and the more contacts I made, the more of the stories were my own idea versus being assigned. But every day we would come in, here's how it worked at CBS. Either I had an idea or there'd be a morning meeting. And in the morning meeting, um, assignments at the morning meeting, there would be various discussions of what we should cover that day, what was going on, and it would get assigned out. As I became specializing maybe in the last 12 years at CBS, particularly in investigative reporting, I was less likely to get assigned a day of air piece, as they call it, something they just needed done. I still did those, but they mostly let me work on my own. And then that worked two different ways. Either I would come up with ideas that I would present to them, and in between, they would say to me, this is how Benghazi came about. Three weeks after the Benghazi attacks, my bosses said, we need to be turning up more news. Can you look into it? So I wasn't even looking at Benghazi till they assigned me. Same with Enron. Uh, sometime after the Enron story was breaking, they had me look into it. I broke news on that. The BP oil spill, um, I'm the one that got the video of the 
undersea oil that was so famous three weeks into the BP oil spill. I wasn't looking at that, but I was assigned to try to dig up information on that story at CBS. And first thing I knew was, and no one had asked for it, apparently no other reporter, even on the beat, I knew there was undersea video. So I set about trying to prove that and get it. And ultimately working with members of Congress, we got that and it went worldwide. Um, So a lot of it is assignment. A lot of it is, you know, what I was coming up with on my own, which those are the best stories, the ones that say just dig around for a little while or the things that come to you because you have a contact or an ability to find something that other people may not know about. So take from what you've just said, how, in your opinion, go fast forward to a, you know, a typical station, CNN, Fox, whichever one it is, because all the anchors always get all the hate, and understandably so, because they say a lot of you know, silly things. But how much of that do you think is them? Or what, what do you think, how do you think the business has evolved from when you were there to today? Well, as a reporter, what I saw happen and why I left CBS mid-contract, and this is now spread pretty much, I think, to most news organizations from what I hear from my colleagues, instead of letting you as a reporter use your expertise and your contacts and find out what's really going on and then reflect the facts wherever they go, they started writing, as I call, little novels in their heads, certain conflicted bosses who wanted certain stories to come out a particular way. And they would start at the outset to say, do a story on X. And the characters, you should find someone who will say this. They would literally script out what the person you interview should say and prescribe how this had to come out by the end of the day. Well, that's, I, I started joking that you don't need me if you've written the story before anything's happened and you know what everybody's going to say. Why am I even involved in the process? And it got to the point where, as one producer put it, because I certainly was far from the only one that noticed this. A producer at CBS said it got to the point where you'd go on the scene and you would tell New York, I'm here to simplify, to make a point the way they told me. I'm looking at the car and it's red and they would turn in a script about the red car and they get called from these conflicted managers in New York who would say, well, that's a great story, but I'm reading Associated Press here in New York and they say the car is blue. And you'd be on the ground and you'd say, well, I know what they're saying, but I'm here looking at it and the car is red. And New York would say, well, that's all well and good, but make it blue. So it got to the point when we felt like you couldn't put what was really happening on the air in regards to some stories. And if you wouldn't change it, which I didn't want to do, um, they wouldn't air the story. You know, it got to be where you, you could see the writing on the wall. And they never said that, by the way, Jonathan. They wouldn't say, you're not slanting the story the way we want. They would just suddenly say, oh, there's more stories than we have time for, because there always are. And yours would be the one that wouldn't air, maybe we'll air it tomorrow or, you know, up on the cutting room floor. Yes. But you know, you know, you know what's going on. Absolutely. And I'm just curious, you know, when you were saying these type of stories is this isn't like in the last 10 years, this is what you were saying back in the nineties, early two thousands. No, I'm sorry. I, I, there was, there's probably always been an element in news of bias, whether it's our own, you know, unintentional bias or occasionally stories come up that are sensitive for various reasons in the corporation. But what I'm talking about, those trends were really the last couple of years I was at CBS, why I left. I had a hugely successful career there with great bosses for, you know, 98% of the time with um, great stories where they unleashed me, so to speak, and let me report truthfully and honestly and factually on a, a lot of different topics. This got to be a problem in the later years, and that's why I left. Awesome. So what do you think changed? Like that's we've got from the last 20, 10, 20 years to where today, like, you know, the big story out last week was the Washington Post story where they're literally saying we have these audios of Trump saying all these things. Obviously, there was one audio that was corroborated because we heard it. But then there's this other story. And literally, they have just come out and issued this huge correction, which we all know in the media, if you tell a story and you tell a lie, and then you tell, like, even an hour later, you know, there's scientific evidence. I remember someone did a, a survey on it. It was the New York Times where they made a lie up. And then they literally, within an hour, corrected the lie. And it was, like, something like 100 retweets to 10,000 retweets because we all buy the lie. We all buy the narrative. What has changed, did you, you think, that's made that happen? Well, I tried to trace quite specifically in The Smear, my last book, the industry that has arisen that does this, that has made news be different because political and corporate interests realized they need to shape the news and shape the narratives that the public sees to control information on sensitive topics, maybe for 
political reasons, maybe for corporate reasons, sometimes they dovetail. I first noticed the pharmaceutical industry doing this quite successfully around the 2005 time period when they were all reporters. This didn't even used to be a sensitive subject on the part of news organizations. We were all looking into vaccine safety issues, pharmaceutical drug dangers, you know, drugs perhaps being approved too quickly and then having to be withdrawn. That was across the board. Every newspaper, every network was looking into those. The pharmaceutical industry is one of the most powerful industries on the planet, as you can imagine, with the biggest money, the most connections among government and media. And I saw them deploy these tactics to try to control and stop the story, controversialize reporters, even using social media as that expanded, using partners that they placed at other news organizations and blogs. And then I noticed after the pharmaceutical industry did this successfully, and it was the first time I, I started hearing, this sounds so silly today because it's so common. It was the first time people were arguing not to air a story. So the pharmaceutical industry didn't even want, it's not that they wanted both sides of a story or their side heard. They didn't want the story to be heard by the public period, no matter what was said about it. And that was new to me at the time. And then I noticed that these tactics expanded with the help of global law firms that were hired and LLCs and super PACs and um, all kinds of groups nonprofits that look like they're supposed to be neutral, they all started using similar tactics on behalf of corporate and political interests, not just the pharmaceutical industry, to control the news and reporters. And I think they, they learned to do this quite successfully, and they've put billions and billions of dollars into this effort. And is it, uh, it what would tactics would they use? Would they smear people? Would they give them money? What's the like? How does that conversation go? Because you know, if you if you know, surely a journalism person who goes to his college and is like, I want, I don't care, I just want to find the truth. You know, if someone starts saying, you know, you can't share this story, you know, where you just came across that the first time, there has to be some part of your body goes, oh, I'm going to share it even more now because you're telling me not to. Well, how do they do this? It's a relentless and multi pronged effort. And it's even expanded into journalism schools and journalism organizations that oversee our ethics. They're funded and take funding from some of these same conflicted interests. And now they're not teaching journalism students necessarily to tell the truth. They're teaching them to advance a viewpoint. So it's all changed by these parties, but it's been an approach that's been so ubiquitous. So they will contact your bosses and harass you. They will they buy advertising on the corporation or they're connected to, you know, financially the corporation. They use that to wield some control. They controversialize you through campaigns of real and fake accounts, you know, robotic accounts done through PR corporations on social media. They control Wikipedia pages through agenda editing that they make sure say certain things and controversialize certain viewpoints and stories. If you're off the narrative, they're going to take you as a reporter, controversialize you so that hopefully nobody listens to you on that topic. I mean, it just goes on and on. And as one person in the smear industry told me, and I interviewed a lot of them for the last book, any thing that you can think of that could be co-opted by these interests to control public opinion has been co-opted whether it's what they talk about on late night comedy shows, whether it's people who are paid to post public comments on the federal register before regulations are passed to make it look like there are people out there who feel a certain way, but these are all people paid to post comments to make it look that way. I mean, this goes very deep. And again, there are entire, there's an entire industry built around doing this successfully. So if these corporations and political interests have the money they buy a connected PR firm or crisis management firm in Washington, D.C. or New York or wherever they want, and they get about doing this, um, you know, to, to accomplish their goal. So question for you that I, I find it very hard. So like I, I see a lot of people in America, I'm, on, I'm Irish, I'm based in Ireland, so I have a different upbringing to the traditional media that you have. And I, I my friends on both sides of the aisle will tell me, journalism today has just changed. And I don't disagree. I think it's got so slanted and biased. I, I You can't look at a news report without being like, oh my God, the double standards. And we'll get to some of the double standards in a minute. But I always think they glorify the past of, you know, the New York Times was this great newspaper and all of a sudden, it's only in the last 10, 20 years, or some people will make the agenda, it's only since Donald Trump that fake news became a thing. But as someone who's researched history, I look at some of the stories and the op-eds and what the New York Times wrote about World War II. I look at, you know, people like Walter Cronkite, you know, and his coverage of Vietnam. So my question to you would be, as, as someone who kind of goes, it was never that good anyway. Yes, it's a lot worse. What Am I wrong? Was it, was it better? Or is it just gotten totally really bad now? 
You're right. And I, I wrote about that a little bit of the history. We do tend to idealize how things used to be. Journalism, as you pointed out, was never perfect. I interviewed Mark Levin, who's a student of, of history and a lot of these topics. And he pointed out that, you know, the pamphleteers back in the founding of our country, you know, way back when there were dueling newspapers that were, you know, publishing smears against each other politically, at least they were labeled and you knew that everybody knew apparently where they were coming from. It's always been an issue, but there was maybe this golden age, you could call it. And I was part of that, at least where we thought there was a group of us, maybe 70s, 80s or so, that our job was to try to firewall that out of the news as much as possible. And there's, there's always an element of the bias we introduce through the, the stories we choose to cover and what gets on TV. But we at least had the perception or at least tried to achieve somewhat of a firewall between our opinion and the news. And that's what's changed. Like there is now no pretense. No one's even pretending to maintain that firewall. Uh, reporters are being taught to insert their opinions, to advance certain agendas, to censor and not talk about other viewpoints that they decide up front the public shouldn't hear. That is all, I think, a drastic new step backwards in what we thought of as traditional journalism. So the question that I have is someone asked me this because I said I was going to interview, you know, I always, I, I talk to my, my people who listen to this show and say, what would you ask? And I had someone who was like 17 and said, look, would you answer this? You DM me and I go, I really love journalism and I love the truth, but I want to get to go to college and do a journalism degree. She gave, she gave, she gave her whole story. Um, but she was like, would you ask her, I'm thinking about going to journalism school because I want to change the system from the inside. And part of me was like, the first reaction when I read the question was like, you're never going to change anything. But I didn't say this because I don't like being that person where you'll never do it. But I thought I'm only going on my experience. What would you say to that person? Can you change it from the inside or can you do things differently? Well, people are trying and I, I get asked a lot by young journalists how they navigate what we've talked about, because if you won't do what virtually every news organization demands of you on, in terms of reporting what they want and probably in a slanted way, um, how are you going to get your next job? How are you going to advance at your first job? You know, I, I put my foot down over stuff and succeeded over the years, partly because I had the time behind me and the status to do so. I couldn't have done that when I was, you know, 22 years old out of college. So it's a very tough environment for a young person to navigate if they don't want to do that kind of reporting. I don't have great advice except to say, if you do go into journalism and you're going into hard news journalism, fact-based journalism, you know, don't compromise yourself. Don't be sucked into, for the sake of your career, reporting the way they want. If it's dishonest, even if you get pats on the back and headlines and great feedback from you know, the, the peanut gallery, just don't do it. It's a slippery slope. And I, I think and hope that there are emerging platforms in the next four years because there are people working on this that want to do the kind of journalism we're talking about, more fact-based, more honest to the, the truth journalism, and hopefully those will expand. I don't think we'll change back the organizations that have been so transformed because they've been infiltrated, literally infiltrated. But I think there will be other organizations where people want to do different kind of journalism that will emerge and hopefully succeed. And I hope young journalists have opportunities at places like that. Awesome. So I, I do too. I think, I don't think, I think the, the CNNs, the MSNBCs, you know, the mainstream media, I think are, are gone, but I, I have hope because of technology and I'm a free market person that people, there will be a thirst for it. Cause I actually think there's a thirst for it out there. That's like, just don't BS me. Yeah. You can give me your opinion, but just give me the truth and, you know, call a spade a spade. And even if it goes against you, even if it's like, I really don't want to have to tell you about this, about my side, but Here's the problem. And I think there's actually going to be a thirst one. I think it's going to build up. And I think you're starting to see that on the left as well. My last well, question one, on this. One thing, one thing I do, sorry to interrupt, but um, mm -hmm. on my show, Full Measure, which is a half hour show, even your audience can find it at fullmeasure.news. After it airs on TV, I post everything free online, fullmeasure.news. One of the things I do besides my investigative reporting and original reporting, I interview people and this just surprises people, but... I don't argue with them. So I may interview a Republican or a Democrat. If they're not the target of an investigation I'm doing, I'm there to hear them. And I can ask challenging questions, but I want the public to hear what they have to say, particularly if other people don't or aren't letting them say something. So I will get a lot. People in this environment, they don't understand why. 
why didn't you tell this person they're wrong about X? They want you to tell what they already think they know. So they're not up for information. They want to see some kind of a debate or argument or prove some kind of point. And I argue there is a form of journalism that I still believe in that just lets you hear whether I agree or not, or whether you agree or not, hear from somebody important or a newsmaker or a decision maker on their views on a topic. And that's kind of gone away if you think about it, you know, otherwise. Absolutely. And you did this a couple of weeks ago on your border special, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But you would imagine that the, the vast majority of people who would watch that were like, you know, let's build the wall, Trump's wall, build the wall, baby. And you actually interviewed a lady who was like, I didn't believe in the wall. And you didn't sort of say, no, what? Why? You, you see, you're, 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 you're talking about drug cartels. You know, you, you know, you could imagine someone else in that situation kind of going, what do you mean you don't believe in the wall? There's drug cartels right there. I, you know, I can show you all this evidence, but you didn't. You actually just said, no, what have you got to say? And it was actually so refreshing to hear. I disagreed with her, but, you know, as a person, but we'll get into that later on. But it was actually really refreshing. The last question I kind of have, and this is just on your opinion. The journalists are the people who are doing, who are saying all this coverage and, you know, making all these cases. Do you think they actually believe it? Are they in such a bubble that they actually don't see the problem? Because this is a, this is a debate I have in my head and I have with a few friends of mine where I go back and forth that they're in, su in such a bubble in New York or in DC or out in the West Coast and they're surrounded by an echo chamber, which says, no, we're not biased. We're, we, we literally are calling an apple an apple and a banana a banana. Or do you think there's a lot of people there who are kind of going, I hate myself, but hey, camera's on, gotta, you know, gotta, gotta say what I gotta say. I think there's both. So in, in my last book, Slanted, I talked to a bunch of journalists and executives who ran ABC, NBC, CNN, I mean, top people. Some of them were named, some of them didn't want to be named, and they recognize the same things you're talking about. And none of them, by the way, I don't think were Trump supporters, but all of them criticized the coverage of Trump in the ways that we're, we've discussed as being unfair. There's a lot of recognition by people who feel like they can't speak out, but there is also that bubble. So, and they talk about that. So some of the people who see it will talk about colleagues um, and conversations they've had in their newsrooms that are completely divorced from the reality when it comes to their own bias and how they're covering stuff. There are people at the New York Times that disagree with the you know, not only the terrible journalism and the mistakes and the stuff they've done in the last few years, but just the overall tack that they've, they have taken in general about covering the news. But there's a huge bubble of people at the New York Times that think this is exactly the mission that they should be on and that they haven't gone far enough in ramming certain viewpoints and trying to change culture in America. I think every newsroom, well, every mainstream newsroom, let's say, has a bit of both. I think it has some journalists that still recognize what it was, at its ideal and that think this is wrong the way the turn that it's been taken, but there's a lot of groupthink. There always has been a surprising amount of groupthink in newsrooms. You get a lot of attention and patting on the back when you report the right thing. You know, other people know when your bosses like what you reported and the word comes down that you're brilliant because you reported something they liked. And then all the colleagues come around and pat you too, you know, if the, if the dispensation has been given to do so. And then quite the opposite. Some of the best stories I felt I covered from an investigative standpoint that received recognition, you know, award recognition from international awards groups, I got the silent treatment after some of those stories, you know, at CBS. So everybody knows what they want you to do, whoever the prevailing editors are and what they don't want you to do. And that's very powerful in a newsroom. So just before we get on to the next topics, which I want to talk, just a totally random question. Um, because I think you're the perfect person to answer this, and it's totally isolated. You've gone from four years of the media going crazy every time Donald Trump would say enemy of the people to, over the last couple of weeks, literally members of the military calling out Tucker Carlson. Forget what you think about what Tucker Carlson said, or even if you like him. This is a very troubling trend to me. What would you say to that? It is. I mean, I think that it's dangerous. So what we're seeing now has gone from kind of just bad and bad for public policy and outrageous to dangerous. The things that are happening now um, really endanger, as I see, the system that we have and the things that we were built on and the stuff that the press is supposed to do, the freedoms that the people here are supposed to have to speak and think what they want. It's We're getting very close to making thoughts a crime. That sounds crazy, but that's how I see it when 
this controversialization, this campaign to make sure people don't think a certain way and express how they think and to make it a crime or to make it be viewed as a crime of violence to have certain thoughts and opinions that should be protected and are, are protected under our constitution. I think we're at a, a very dangerous space in this country. And I think it's, I call it tyranny of the minority because I believe the majority feels like you describe and like I do. Um, when I go out and talk, they think that in general, this is my position, all information except that which is illegal should be accessible. We own it. It's up to us. We are allowed to even believe and say false information if we want in this country. And who's to say what's true and false sometimes in matters of debate? That's another problem I have with certain aspects of the press and government. They're trying to declare things true or false when there's no way to know. So that's, that's perilous. So you're allowed to have an opinion that some say is false or not true. But that's protected in this country. Well, we're getting to the point where it's kind of not. Well, you may be a um, criminal if you feel that way because you might attack the government. So I think the majority still feels that these freedoms are owed to us, but there is a very vocal and powerful and organized minority of people that want to stop these kinds of thoughts and deploy any tactic they can to control the public's thought, thoughts and actions. And I think the reason they're so heavy handed is because they know there's so many people out there who feel differently. They don't know any other way to control it. And certainly free access to information isn't successfully controlling the masses the way these people want. They're still voting for Donald Trump. After all, I like to point to the fact that nearly every mainstream media outlet said, don't vote for him in 2016. And look how many votes he even got in 2020 after four years of, of the media telling everybody that he was crazy and dangerous. That's terrifying to the people who want to control opinion when they see no matter what we're telling people, they're forming their own conclusions. We can't have that. I think the big thing, and I, I'm going to be ramming this home for probably the next year, is there's going to be times where you're going to make yourself defend people even that you don't like. You know, like, and it, this is happening right now. Like, you, literally, you would, it's a different country, but it's England. We're not talking about China here. England, Piers Morgan got fired for the offense of saying he did not believe anything Meghan Markle said. And then in your country, Sharon Osbourne got fired. There might be different reasons for it, but she actually stood up for him. So I think, you know, you're, if it's great to have principles, but you're going to have yourself times where you're going to have strange bedfellows and you're going to have to say, I don't really like them, but I have to stand for their right to speak. I, you know, I may disagree with their opinion, but they have a right to express it. And this is fundamentally true. And I think it needs to be defended on all sides. Well, that's what's so important. I think that this fight has been divided by on purpose between in our country, Democrats and Republicans, when it's not a liberal conservative argument. In fact, as you said, there are bedfellows such as the far left Glenn Greenwald, who quit his own news organization, The Intercept, because his own organization that he created censored his Hunter Biden story and wouldn't publish it. There are a lot of traditional liberal thinkers who are very much in line with conservative thinkers and libertarian thinkers on some of these issues. And it is important that we don't let this be divided purely among along political lines or we can't get to a conclusion because then you have half the people happy. You know, I if you don't mind me going off for a minute, one mm -hmm. thing that I, I criticize is I see conservatives sometimes arguing, why aren't you censoring the left the way you're censoring us? And that falls into the trap of accepting that these third parties should be doing that, taking on that role in the first place. The third parties have no business doing that, in my view. They should neither be censoring the left nor the right. So we shouldn't get trapped into this argument of, hey, you're not doing to them what you're doing to us. We better see you do it to them. Absolutely. I think censoring is one of the most dumbest ideas that you can have. And I say this as someone who's seen some horrifically stuff said, because I always go, I want them to have the opinion to say this. If Even if you think the most vile opinion to me, I, like, you know, racism, if you're like, if you have a racist expressing their opinion, I want them to be able to express it because I want to be able to say and go, hey, there's this opinion and here's why it's wrong. A, B, C, D, E, F. This is why you're an idiot if you believe in racism and make the argument and defeat their arguments. Whereas if you censor people, guess what? That, that racist is still going to have their opinion and they're just going to share it with people who like-minded and we'll never hear about it and we can never have people you know make the argument going hey this is why this is a really dumb idea or whatever well, issue it is the notion that donald trump he's virtually censored you know 
it's not an official government action, but I argue in my book why it qualifies as censorship in my view, because the blending of these big tech corporations, their influence, you know, under the government pressure um, to do certain things. But the notion that people are cheering on even journalism groups that he can't be found hardly anywhere now and that he can't have his social media accounts, it's unbelievable. I mean, even if you look back, there were interviews that we would get as journalists with you know, terrorist leaders, and people wanted to hear them, to hear what these people had to say. Nobody was saying 20 years ago they didn't want to hear what, what a despicable person thought. Those were interviews that the public wanted to hear. Um, Saddam Hussein was interviewed when possible. Uh, Libyan Lear, I, I believe I interviewed Muammar Gaddafi, I can't remember what year, but when I was at CNN, we interview people that others may not agree with or that we don't agree with or that may have despicable opinions to let them be heard so that the public can understand what's out there. The answer is not to censor and not let anybody even know that these views exist or how these people think. I just think it's a crazy development that, and I think the development of censorship is born out of desperation because of these powerful interests, lack of ability to control the public the ways that they've been trying. Let's segue from journalism into a couple of topics that uh, that personally affect you. First of all, you've done it. You did a great special over the last couple of weeks. You did it over two weeks, on, and it was released on your website, Full Measure, and it was on Twitter as well. That's where I found it. Was on the border, and this is a re- topic that really annoys me because the, I understand that the left-right divide in America, where it's the right talk about principles and the left always tug on the heartstrings. One of the things that frustrates me is we never seem to get the stories of how illegal immigration affects people. It affects people like me who've been waiting to get in your country 17 years, and it's incredibly hard to do things the right way. But it also affects American citizens right now in the sense of that there are people who have paid, like a good friend of mine, paid over 10,000 English pounds to get to marry an English man to go through all the paperwork and the process. And it took her six months of her life going back and forward. These are stories that are never told, yet you have all these cases and it's on left and right. Republicans are just as bad where illegal immigration, you cross the border that they act out of love. They didn't commit a felony. They're, they're, they're good people. You know, they're, they're just decent people. How do we get that narrative out, the, the opposite narrative out on this story, before we get to the actual numbers that's happened recently? Well, it's very tough because, as you mentioned, and it didn't used to be this way, but the interests of both political parties are so intertwined with illegal immigration that it's now difficult to find many people that tell the factual story of what's happening. And it's so ridiculously illogical, some of the arguments that are made. When you talk about they're good people, surely there are good people who come, but we don't really know, do we? Because we're not checking. And then the whole controversialization over Donald Trump saying that some of them were rapists and some of them were good people. Well, you know, under the Obama administration, I did stories about figures that came out. One in every five used to be one in four, one in every five federal prison inmate that we know of at least one in five, is an illegal immigrant who's committed further crimes in the U.S. Our prisons are full of them, disproportionate to the number that's here. So they do commit crimes in a disproportionate number. There are um, a million drug crimes over a five-year period that these illegal immigrants that we knew of were charged with in federal prison. Tens of thousands of sexual abuse cases, rapes, murders, homicides, terrorist crimes. I mean, there is a lot not to mention the cost, you know, there's just tons of cost affiliated with all of this. Um, So at CBS, I did stories on what I call the noble immigrants. There are many stories of wonderful people who come here for a better life, do great things for this country and, and are deserving people. And there are also stories that CBS, I noticed, didn't want you know, didn't want to do, because there's a flip side to that of the criminal element, the drugs that are brought in, the perils of not protecting our border, the things that you talked about, the unfairness and the inequity of letting people in who happen to be close and who happen to pay drug cartels and have the money, and yet at the expense of people all over the world who would like to come here, either the right way or the wrong way, but just aren't close enough to do it. 
So um, how do you get that story out? It's very tough. I, I can air those on my independent show, Full Measure, but you're just not going to see a lot of that typically in um, the media that tends to take a viewpoint on this. And the viewpoint is there's just no harm. Absolutely. And that, like I have, as I say, I have friends on both sides of the aisle and I, I really struggle on this issue on so many, I, I, maybe it's just me because I, I'm so connected to it and I'm so frustrated that, you know, 17 years later of all that rejection and, you know, I had a job offer from Glenn Beck. I was that close to achieving my dream and I'm still here. But I look at it also from the principal side of things where I look at it kind of going, Listen, if you believe, let's just say you believe in anyone who wants to come to America can come to America. You know, fair enough. If you believe that, then let's get to that point and let's have that legislative discussion. But how is it okay to say, you know what, you're poor, you're coming here for a better life. You know, just take the noble immigrant that you've interviewed and that you've just spoke about. How do you think it's okay and right that you go, we're just not going to do anything. We're not going to change the laws, but we're going to call them noble, but we're going to put them in the hands of the drug cartel and get the border. Or the in, the kids who, you know, we love the kids. You can't, you know, you can't do anything against the kids, but you think it's okay for an unaccompanied adult to walk across that border. It's a rough terrain. You know, forget the, the coyotes or the drug cartels. You could die of heat, you know, exhaustion or, or, or uh, dehydration, but we don't ever even have that discussion anymore. Well, and they're put in the hands of traffickers in many instances. And because children are allowed in um, and those who with it are with them until Trump, President Trump made some changes, were also allowed to stay. So if an unaccompanied minor came in with other people, not a parent, everybody in the group was allowed to stay. What did that do? I mean, how can you not see this? The cartels began recruiting underage children to mule and traffic <clears throat> not only drugs but people across the border which exploits the children then we know then when people come children come here and they're put in the hands of the government here hopes someone who's a relative that hasn't abused children and isn't a rapist and so on too often though we know that they've ended up in the hands of people who are abusers even if they are relatives we have found many cases of people uh, who've come from other countries illegally, who are working in places where they're practically kept as slaves and they can't complain about work slaves because who are they going to complain to? But they've been caught on farms and plantations and places where they're working involuntarily. They've been trafficked and brought here by a pipeline of criminals that uses and exploits the weakness at our border to do horrible things to the people that I think the uninformed members of the public who don't think it out think we're doing a good thing for, and it's it's not good. And, you know, President Obama actually said something. I try to think out both sides of stories. And I've been, a lot of people haven't been to the border, so may, maybe they don't know better. I've been there a lot and talked to everybody there, you know, all sides. I believe President Obama said the, the same kind of thinking I have. Let's say you want to get rid of the security problem, the fact that there are terrorists who try to come in. Let's say they're all good people, 100% of them. And we want to let them in. Well, it's not fair, as I said, just to let the people who happen to pay 6000 or 20000 to a drug cartel to do it. And plus, we don't really want to subsidize the drug cartels. So let's let everybody in. So how does that look? Well, you have to fairly allow people, maybe transport them from China and Africa and other places where poor people need a better life. So you have to have, you know, let them all come in. And we simply, you get to the point where you understand we don't have the infrastructure to do that. We don't have schools to put them, places for people to live, the, the hundreds of millions of people that would want to come here overnight. So you get led to, you have to have an orderly system. The orderly system is our immigration system today. So you end up, even if you're someone who thinks everybody ought to be able to come to America, I think you end up back where you started with there has to be an orderly system to do it. Absolutely. And like for me, I, you know, you used to have a great immigration system a long time ago. And it was where my, my great, uh, my great, my grandparents' uh, siblings came over to your country. And that's where how I fell in love with it, where, you know, my, my grandmother's sister, well, she'd be my, my great aunt. I'm really bad at family. Sorry. I'm a guy. <laughs> um, but she got over there and she had a, she married a Polish guy and had kids and she actually, you know, volunteered for Reagan down in Florida and stuff. But the system that how they got in was they went to Staten Island and you were allowed in, but you had to prove certain things. You wouldn't be allowed to take any money from the government. You had to prove you were healthy and you had to kind of give a background check. Once those criteria were met, you were in. I think, you know, there are some people who will go, that's not enough. We need more. Fair enough. But let's have that discussion. 
not constantly of where it's always about illegal immigration and, and all these situations where you're putting people in because you did a, a say you did a, a an expose on this just recently and you you know the numbers are staggering they were on your website where at the 11th of February there was 30,868 um, people who tried to cross the border that they know of and by March 4th that increased by 65% to 51,183 those numbers are staggering and if it keeps going and growing and growing like that's now after 2 months of Joe Biden what happens in year 2 year 3 year 4 you're talking about real lives here and real impacts how do we get that message out there or are we just just should we just give up wave the white flag well, there are people who I don't think are entirely opposed. Maybe they're opposed to the bad press because even some liberal inst uh, media institutions are actually reporting on this now, surprisingly. Um, but they're not so upset with the outcome. There are people who I believe, based on what I've learned over the years, really do are happy to have hundreds of thousands of illegal, illegal immigrants come in and flood our towns and make them, they, they hope, bluer, more Democrat places that will then they're already pushing to make illegal immigrants in some cases have the right to vote. So this is all something that certain political interests think helps them down the road. And it probably does. I'm not sure it works out exactly like, like I, they I got a I got to fact check you there. I know every illegal immigrants votes for Donald Trump. You know, I, I gotta, I'm not letting you slide at that one. <laughs> well, you know, they do say some people who come here, um, don't want even once they establish their life in America, they kind of see that they don't want other people coming that way. So I'm, I'm yeah. you know, I'm just not sure not how it works that in the end. But there's a bill that um, has been passed by the House, a voting bill, and one of the provisions I noticed in it would make it where people have automatic registration to vote if you get a driver's license or do certain things. And there, as you may know, some states that allow illegal immigrants to get a driver's license. So they would be automatically registered to vote. And a further provision of, uh, provision of this bill would say, if an illegal immigrant votes illegally, but does so because they were automatically registered, then they won't be prosecuted. So you can see what, there's, what is being set up by this bill that the Democrats have forged. It is a way for masses of illegal immigrants, at least that's how the bill reads, to ultimately be able to vote without being prosecuted for having done so illegally because they were automatically registered. And yes, you know, this, I just think it, they think it will benefit them. Wow. So the last question I have on this was just that your your document, documentary the last two weeks was you, 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 I encourage everyone to check it out. I think it's like 10 minutes each segment. But you, you have this, you're in the helicopter and you're shown, been shown the border and all the wall been built. And the one question that just struck me as I was watching it was they were, the, the gentleman who you were with was sort of giving you the guided tour of this is what to look out for. And you were shown different hills, but you were shown there was gaps in the border wall. And they were like, that's because that's where their gates and now they're totally gone. The minute the executive order um, was signed, literally evident down till see you later, no more wall been built. The one thing that I, when I saw that I was kind of going, Surely, and especially in America, like in Ireland, when our elections happen, it's a changeover like that. You ha they had two months to know Donald Trump is out of office, Joe Biden. It mightn't happen day one, but by day five, this is happening. Why didn't they sort of go, let's get this section sorted. Let's get those gates in there. I know we mightn't get as more wall down here, but at least let's get this area complete. Did you have any, did you have any answers to that? Well, all of that is up to the... You know, the Border Patrol doesn't decide that. The construction companies don't decide that. So they, they've had a plan. I do believe most people thought Donald Trump, including Donald Trump, was going to be reelected. So there wasn't a need to transition. But yes, when it became clear that Biden was going to be put in, um, if you're saying the Trump administration should have filled the gates, maybe that's maybe that is something that should have been done. I really didn't think of it from that viewpoint. I do think what I heard most often was you're a new administration and unless you have no experience in the real world, do you not understand even if you oppose a project, you can't just leave it, you have to wind it down. And so that's the strange part to me. But I will say the Biden administration has a self-imposed deadline. I think they're up against it to decide whether to wind it down. So they just up and left everything, gaps and all, equipment's gone. But they did have in the executive order that they were to study and decide what to do. Do we finish it up? Do we put the gates in or whatnot? I haven't heard anything about what they've decided. But yeah, that was just an unbelievably 
poor decision on the part of everybody, you know, that could have done something different just to leave partly built wall because to build the wall, they took out, sometimes they had a six strand barbed wire fence, but at least they had something. They took that out to build the wall, but when work stopped overnight, they've left many parts with nothing, not even that six strand barbed wire fence. So what was the last question of this? What was the biggest thing you learned from your recent trip to the border? You know, what was the talking to people on the ground was what was what were the general feelings or what did you learn? I was surprised. I guess the most surprising part was the Border Patrol knows and already knew before the influx that they were going to have they're going to have this flood. They know it's a no in situation for them. And they said, we are not going to get caught holding people we don't have room for interminably again and get it criticized for that. We're going to dump them. They didn't say dump, but we're going to let them go in these border communities. So they've been telling these communities, sometimes 65 miles from the border, we're going to bring them to your town and let them go. And the community is saying, we don't have space for this. Some of these are small communities and you're talking about thousands of people a day. Some communities are two or 3000 people and they're being told we're not going to coronavirus test. So that's like the most shocking thing to me that if I crossed into Mexico and tried to come back, I'd have to have a test of some kind. But they're letting any illegal immigrants who cross. Border Patrol will not test them, says it's not their job. No one from the government has rushed in to provide tests, and they're going to be dumped into communities. When we're told coronavirus is such an issue, it either is or it isn't. You know, I don't understand, and nobody down there seems to understand how it cannot be an issue for the, you know, 100,000 illegal immigrants who tried to get into this country in February, you know, with the number growing. 100,000 that we know of, there's a category called gotaways, tens of thousands that they see on cameras and surveillance and can't get to. So they also know there's tens of thousands of those that, they, that they're not able to intercept. hit the which we've talked about a lot of issues but this is probably the most frightening one and this one is is a especially for you so this lady is well known she's a household name and i've one of the biggest things that i believe in america is the constitution and the bill of rights it's what separates you from the rest of the world but there are certain things that has happened over the last 20 years that have really eroded and the fourth amendment is dead and the reason it is dead is because of you know the history 9-11 the patriot act but you need a right to privacy. You need to have, if you're looking at your computer and this line of, well, look, I'm doing no harm. I'm doing no harm. Just leave, you know, let them have the information. You have a right to privacy, what you do in your, you have a right to privacy in your papers, your persons, your possessions, your computer history. You have had a, a really horrible time with your federal government where, what was it? When was it? 20, was it 2013 when it first happened? Or is it going back long? You know, we, we've traced the forensics to uh, early 2012, I believe, and it continued on through, and it may have even been 2011. I haven't looked in a while, but it continued on through the elect 2012 election time period that the government was illegal, illegally monitoring my devices and my family's devices. And as you said, you know, it's not a matter of was I doing anything wrong? Someone planted classified documents in there. These are pe not good people. These are people who want to do harm. So they're not just looking to see if you did something wrong. They're looking for ways to use information against you. And as one former federal officer involved in the surveillance admitted, and it's not the first time he said they've done this to hundreds and maybe thousands of people, they were contemplating planting child porn on my family's computer so that then the police would be called and find that. And how do you ever get over that? Because everybody denies it. And it's something that always hangs over your head and you're never going to be able to prove the government inserted that. So these are the kinds of dangers that people don't understand when they say they can look at my stuff because, you know, I'm not doing anything wrong. Absolutely. And, and you have this old saying, you know, I'm sure you have it over there. That, well, there's no smoke without, uh, there's no fire without a bit of smoke. You know, she had, she, she might have been looking at that child porn, but, you know, maybe there was someone in the house and, and just, it just never, ever goes away. It's impossible to clear your name. But this is why I think it's an absolute critical story that every American knows is because, you know, 
if this something happens to me or to you know to the average listener listening, they have no comeback. You're a household name, and yet the government was still brazen. You've had a you've been going from let's say 2012 or 2011. You brought them to court to say, look, this you know you've had all this evidence. You've had people independently check your computers. You've had all this evidence. You've gone to court, and even today you're still not getting to clear your name. And there was a there was a a, a ruling made this week or last week. Why don't you tell us about that? Well. My name doesn't need to be clear. They, this is something they did to me. What I'm trying to do is hold them accountable because the guilty parties worked for the Department of Justice, which is the group responsible for prosecuting the guilty parties. So you learn in this country when we never hoped we would be here, but when the guilty parties are the investigators and when they won't hold their own accountable, what do you do? So I fought a very expensive and time-consuming lawsuit with the help of some advocates and, you know, who've done a great job for me. But you come to realize the way our court system is structured, and mine's not the only decision that's been like this, you can have all the forensic proof in the world and even admissions from a guilty party. But if you can't get the court to even take the case or get it before a jury, you'll never get anybody to decide accountability for these people. And so we've been challenged on wrong venue, too much time has passed, you didn't give us the names of the agent. Yes, you have all the forensics and you have all the proof, but you don't have the names. And we've argued this is circular logic. And one appellate judge said this quite clearly. How can one get the names of those responsible without discovery from the guilty parties? But I'm not being allowed discovery from the guilty parties because I don't have the names of those responsible. It's this circular logic. And I've come to believe that a court in this country, I don't know how it works where you are, they can decide the outcome they want to have on a case. They look at a case, they either want it or they don't. And they can pick any kind of legal justification to find the outcome that they want. And the judges do not want this case to be heard. Every step of the way, when they could have made a decision that goes either way to help the case move forward and help us get discovery, they take the opposite tack. So we have concluded they don't want this case for whatever reason. Um, we just issued a statement that said, because the latest court said they were, you know, agreed with the Department of Justice and the federal officials we were suing that there are problems with they have legal immunity, they have, you know, reasons they can't be sued. So we've issued a statement saying basically that they've acknowledged the government spying and Rod Rosenstein, who was in charge of the Justice Department at one time, but when the spying was going on, he was a U.S. head U.S. attorney in Baltimore, Maryland. They've admitted that they did it. And they've said the only reason we can't sue is they have legal immunity or the case has gone on for too long. So at least we feel like we've gotten the admission and that's something to be able to get at the truth and not make it so easy for them to continue to do this, you know, to other people, which I'm, I'm certain they have. I believe the surveillance abuses that still haven't been punished that we saw in 2016 might not have happened if cases like mine, and I'm not the only one, had been properly prosecuted when we found out about those back in 2014. But because those weren't handled, by the corrupt officials and Department of Justice, it continues to happen. So where do you go from here? As uh, as your case pertains, but also as a general, what can people do? Or is it, again, is it, how do, what advice would you give to people, you know, to ensure this doesn't happen to anyone else on left or right? Well, from the surveillance, there's nothing you can do. And one thing I learned from my sources is the government wants to get in your computer and see what you're doing. It doesn't matter what encryption you do or what safeties you have. They can cut through those like butter, as they tell me. And that's quite true. So I, I operate as if everything I do is being monitored. That's just I have no other way to do it. And it's hurt my news gathering abilities because people realize this. They don't want to talk to you certain ways. It makes things harder because they want to talk to you securely. And I, I tell people point blank when they want to speak to me that there's I can't guarantee that the way they're talking to me is secure. Um, so I, I'm afraid there's not much you can do, particularly when your own Justice Department's not going to prosecute these cases. If one person went to jail for it or prison, it would probably stop. But they're not doing that. Um, my particular case, we have a law conference next week to decide what to do. Uh, we can still file against some remaining defendants, including one who's admitted the surveillance. We can continue on. We're just not sure. Um, I'm just not sure what the outcome is if the court doesn't want this case. Even in an instance where the defendant was not challenging it, the court sided with and swept that defendant in the argument, even though the defendant was not was saying, I admit it. I don't want Cheryl's case to go away. I want this to be revealed. The court still swept up that person 
and dismiss the case on his behalf when he didn't want to dismiss. How am I ever going to get to court under those conditions? I don't know. So last question on this one, just and feel free to ignore this because it's an open case. But why do you think the court won't hear it? Is it a case of they just don't want the the political fallout because you know some of these cases get quite contentious. You know, you know, even if you hear them, evidence starts coming out, and then you they have to actually say it's easier to go just let's not hear it rather than saying I have to sort of go vote and say it's either guilty or not guilty or make the ruling. Or is it a case of we can't have this get out? Just keep brushing it under the rug. Don't doesn't matter. Again, feel free not to answer. Well, I think it's more we can't have this case get out, brush it under the rug, and why? You know, you hear all kinds of stories over the years about judges who are conflicted and controlled, courts that are conflicted and controlled, political influence in our court system. I don't know. You know, we kept hoping we would hit upon a judge. You know, some some of them, including one appellate judge, as I mentioned, said this was hugely an important case and should have been heard and that I was denied all of my lawful opportunities to pursue against the guilty parties. That's the kind of judge I was hoping for. But unfortunately, he was in the minority when it came to a decision about whether this should go forward, we never hit upon a judge. You know, they, they have completely opposite opinions. One just says she can't pursue it because she can't provide the names of the guilty agents. And the other judge, unfortunately, who's in the minority is saying, how on earth can she provide the names without discovery? But we didn't get that kind of a judge on the cases and rulings that mattered to get this case before court. And it's anybody's guess, because this is important as to why they don't want to hear it. This should be heard. And as time went on and we learned about more and more government abuses, including admitted abuses, for example, of wiretapping Carter Page, a former Trump associate, as more and more of this came out, I kept thinking the courts will want the government to understand that when they keep if they keep doing this to citizens, that there will be repercussions. And instead, the courts have just thrown up their hands and said, you know, wrong venue or you took too long or whatever the technical reasons are. So very. this might be the most dumbest question you've ever had, but I, and I apologize, but is there, when this all goes through the courts, and let's say, that's hopefully this doesn't happen, but let's say it's totally squashed and they won't hear it, and you're kind of, you're at a point where you're like, no more avenues. Can you sort of release everything you've built over the last eight years and sort of say, well, look, I tried the legal route, went to courts, didn't happen. America, here it is. And are you open to libel laws or, you know, no, no, or- no. I've, I've released quite a bit. For example, I released a statement from a former FBI official who helped me get the first forensics of the many exams that I had, where he testified, you know, what was found in my computer and that it was government in nature. I've released um, forensic opinions from a former NSA National Security Agency official who looked at forensics also in a, as an independent exam and saw what happened that the government had surveilled and the details um, I think I've, you know, just the press here is not going to cover that because of the reasons we've discussed in a fair way overall. This should be one of the biggest stories, not because it's me, but because of what's being done to citizens by our government. It's not being covered that way. So the information is out there. The only thing we haven't released, and we've released a lot of the forensics, we haven't released like a 50 page forensic report that we never finalized because that's finalized. Once the case goes in, that's when you have your final forensics completed and signed off and you have affidavits done. So we always had preliminary information. We included tons of that in our complaint, but we've pretty much put out there a lot of what we had. Um, So it's available for people. And then, you know, in this environment, the weird thing is, and people know this now that no matter what you put out, and this is airtight proof, it's like a fingerprint, you know, the government surveillance into my computer system and all the things that they did. But there will always be propagandists very, who are very good at what they do, who will claim the exact opposite. They will look at the data and they will pick it apart and say, this proves the, this proves the opposite. I mean, I learned that. I won't go into it because it's just a long story. Early on when there was some evidence presented and the propaganda smear group Media Matters, who works for all of these conflicted interests, put out a whole bunch of false information to try to disparage what had been found. And the press picked that up. You know, they only pick up the one side false information because they don't understand. And maybe they want to believe a certain side or a certain narrative. So it's very hard to get factual information out there in a way that the public can see and examine fairly because of all of these forces at play, which is the story of our interview today. 
Absolutely. And I, how can people find you? Because they need to support your work, find, you know, support you, your website and getting all your evidence out. Because I, the one thing I will say is, again, you might not agree with everything you do or people listening. You might be left or right, but, you know, you're independent and you'll give it, you know, you'll give everyone their, their fair due. Where can people find you? Well, I cross post most of what I do at CherylAckison.com. And if you, even if you misspell my name, it should come up, CherylAckison.com. I write for Real Clear Politics and Epic Times and The Hill. You know, I try to put it all there. And if you just want some great original reporting, and I've reported on Brexit, a lot of international issues. I've been to Russia. I've been all over Europe. We've done that at Full Measure, my Sunday TV show. And you can see that in any country at fullmeasure.news. It's that kind of reporting people used to appreciate that doesn't jam a viewpoint down your throat, but just has a lot of interesting information in there, particularly information maybe some people don't want you to have. So I would urge people to look at charlaxon.com and fullmeasure.news. And thank you so much. And we finish our show the way we do every week in America by saluting you, the great American people. Never ever forget, no matter how big the issues are, the secret sauce to America is you in the sentiments it's told from. America is great because Americans are good. Until next Saturday at 12 and Eastern, have a beautiful and blessed week. Freedom versus freebies. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network.